In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Best-selling author Laura Munson is today's guest on Money Tales. Early in life, Laura decided to leave the safety and riches of the debutante society she grew up in for the wilderness of Montana to hone her skills as a novelist. Initially, she had a lot of freedom to write, and then her marriage took a turn, forcing Laura to monetize her passion for writing so she could pay her bills. Through these efforts, Laura has created a community of inspired writers who join her in Montana or virtually to explore their human experience through the written word. Hi, this is Cami. Laura's recent book, Will is Grove, is about four women with entirely different lives who find themselves together at similar jarring crossroads. Spoiler alert, money plays a big role in these characters' lives. You'll hear from them as Laura talks to us during this interview. In addition to writing novels, Laura teaches writing through her Haven writing retreats and programs. Now, on to our interview with Laura Munson. Laura Munson, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're with us today. Oh, I'm really excited for this conversation, Sandy and Cami. Thanks for having me. To get us started, will you please share with us a brief history of your life, your journey thus far, focusing on two or three pivotal moments that make you the person that you are talking with us? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and then lo, I have lived in Montana in a small town called Whitefish near Glacier National Park for the last 30 years where I've raised two children. And I think that the moment that I decided to move out west was probably what changed everything. That, and they say it's one person, and that was a college professor who had me realize that I wasn't going to be an actress nor a filmmaker, but a writer. With that, I realized I probably wasn't going to join an entry-level banking program, nor did I want to write about Keebler elves and work for an advertising agency. And so I decided to move out west and take on any job I could to not be tempted away from the writing life. And I've been hard at it for many years and to have two published books and a whole lot of published ones in my office closet. Hopefully we'll get to read those soon, but congratulations on your most recent book, Willis Grove. We want to talk about the book and maybe you could read from, from the beginning of Willis Grove and set some context. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I know that our subject today is money. I also think that part of what drives this great work that you all do and the work that I do as well is storytelling and the importance of sharing your story and with safe people. I really want to start a movement with this book that's inspired by my Haven writing retreats and different writing programs that I lead out here in Montana. For years, I've just watched people come together and it's like magic every time. And they always say, we're your best group, right? It could never be this good again. And I have to break the news that it's just always that great. And I think that part of it is that people are out of their 
their daily lives and they're using the written word to tell their stories. And so I wanted to capture that in this book and I want this book to start a movement. It's about four women who are all at major crossroads moments. They come together to try to help each other figure out what's next in their lives. Here's the letter to the reader. It's at the end of the book and it starts with a quote that one of the women says in the book, which I love. And I think it goes perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today. She says, you know, we're all fluent in this language, in the language of community, and yet we so rarely speak it. It really is our mother tongue. And then there's a letter to the reader. It says, dear reader, I have learned something that might just be the most important lesson of my life, and I would like to share it with you. There is a language that we crave, a language of the heart that grows from our worry and our wonder and our stories rooted in the experience of this beautiful and heartbreaking thing called life. Too many of us have trained ourselves out of speaking that language. We were all fluent in it when we were children, but somewhere along the way we were taught or conditioned to forget it, not be honest when we are asked, how are you? And to not really listen to the answer when we ask others the same question. So many of us have lost our authentic voices and reduced our conversations to grocery store talk and texts with an emoji at the end. The truth is we long to be seen and heard and accepted, especially when we are in pain. Yet, out of fear of judgment or rejection, we too often draw in and become islands rather than bridging to our family and friends. I know this because at times I've made that choice and the fallout from that led me to devote a major piece of my life to bringing people together in safe, intimate circles of self-expression, which led me to write this book. I wrote, I wrote Willis Grove to capture the power of people stepping out of the isolation and self-doubt that so many of us feel in times of transition and instead gathering together. These women show us that we don't have to endure hardship alone, nor should we. We have choices. If, for whatever reason, connecting with our usual community is too fraught, we can instead create temporary circles, friend to friend to friend to friend, carving out small interludes from our daily lives in order to focus on what comes next, to have those conversations we need to be having but aren't, to move boldly outside of gossip, small talk, pretending, and into the connection we so deeply need. I hope that in reading this book and in the spirit of Willa, Bliss, Harriet, and Jane, you will be inspired to reach out to your own dear friends, whether close by or far away, and that you will invite them to come together for short respites to support one another in the powerful way that people can when they give themselves permission to say yes to the profound invitations of their lives. My mission is this. We will start a movement of week-long interludes from the stresses and pain of our crossroads moments and in radical and real communication, we will provide ourselves and our kindreds with a map for our next steps. Our voices deserve to be honored and heard. No one has your voice, no one. However we speak, now is the time for truth and we don't have to do it alone. Yours, Laura. So that's the letter to the reader. And I think it's so congruent with what you all are doing. And in this book, they talk about money. I know we're going to get to that later. I thought I'd just read you the invitation that they all say yes to. And hopefully your audience can say yes to the same invitation. Here it is. You are invited to the rest of your life. You know you can't go on like this, not for one more day. You need an interlude. Imagine this, you are in a farmhouse in Montana, wrapped in a soft blanket, sitting by a warm wood stove. 
There is a cup of tea in your hand, just the way you like it. There are women surrounding you who need this just as badly as you do. We all have the same question. The question is, so now what? Come to Montana and find out. Love, Willa. You don't have to do this alone. I love that. Thank you, Laura, for that reading. And that's such a great invitation for this conversation we're about to have. Thank you for that context. So Laura, tell us about your childhood. Give us some context of growing up in Illinois and what it was like in your family and how money was used in your family. Well, I grew up in a very affluent suburb north of Chicago. And my mother was a Chicago socialite who grew up downtown. My father came from a working class industrial sort of small town in central Illinois. And so he always was in awe of what he was able to create and what he and my mother co-created because she also worked together. And I had a little window seat in my bedroom growing up and I'd look out around six o'clock when I knew my dad would be coming home from the train. And I would see him in his Brooks Brothers suit and his felt fedora and his shiny leather shoes walking around our property. And he'd come in every night and say, do you know how lucky we are? And so he and I would get into all sorts of conversations because about money because from an early age, he had me really aware of this idea of white privilege and the specific kind of wasp white privilege that you can't really buy your way into. You have to have come over on the Mayflower kind of thing. <laughs> I think I had like 14 ancestors that came over on the Mayflower on both sides, actually. But that self-awareness really brought me through my childhood wanting to, to test drive my father's motto, which was people are the same everywhere. And so I took that field study into every debut party. Yes, I was a debutante. I took that to prep school in New England. I took it to every single family reunion where we had a lot of our farm cousins and people who did not grow up in that sector. And I, I live by that. I've traveled the world trying to see if it's true. And I have found that it is. Now, I will tell you one more thing about this whole thing. With money, I think brings there, there can be a lot of shame. I'm sure you talk about shame a lot on this program. And I, I think that one of the things I saw was that because I didn't have that trust fund, yes, we had enough to belong to the country club and go on nice spring vacations and et cetera. But I always knew that while most of my friends could have as many fair owl sweaters from the 70s and 80s or lawns nightgowns or LL Bean boots or whatever preppy people wear. I really would get one of those things. And, and I learned early just in watching what privilege does. Money brings you choices and it brings you comfort, but it does not bring you happiness. And I saw that up close and personal my whole life. And I learned not to attach to money because of that. And I think that's why I'm a writer, actually, because I got to see that you could live in these beautiful, beautiful mansions on the lake and still not be happy. So that's something I've really fastened to my heart. And I do, again, believe that that's why I'm a writer. So say, say more about that, Laura. I think that people who become writers are highly sensitive people to start with. And especially if that awareness is fostered by a loved one uh, or a teacher then hopefully you don't go to, to sleep at the wheel like so many people do in adolescence. Because I remember as a child 
we all talked about money. We talked about money all the time. We would lie on beanbag chairs in these beautiful homes on the lake and just chew gum and talk about money. And then all of a sudden, people stopped talking about money. And they also stopped talking about all kinds of things right around sixth grade. And I've worked with a lot of educators, and I found that something happens right around adolescence, whether it's nature, nurture, hormones, whatever it is, where we become self-conscious. But I also think that and, and money is one of those arenas where there's a lot of self-consciousness to have. But I also think that right around then, we were old enough that all the parents gave the kids the same lecture, which is something to the tune of, it is inappropriate to talk about money. And so I stopped talking about it too. But every so often, somebody would hint at something like, you know, if I don't name my daughter after my great-grandmother, I will be disowned. Or I won't get my trust fund if X, Y, Z. And I thought, maybe I'm really lucky that I... I don't have a trust fund. Maybe I'm actually free. And so I just think all that, all that self-awareness, all that high sensitivity, I just translated it into a high level of curiosity. And I think that turned into a writing life. Mm, that's great. I, I love all these stories. How was money handled in your home? Your folks are coming from different backgrounds. How are they approaching how money is made, how money is saved and how money is spent? And are you talking about it as a family? Lots of mixed messages on that one, as I'm sure a lot of your guests say. I was raised with an intense work ethic. And my sister also has it. My mother has it. My father had it. He's no longer with us. My mom is 87 and she still works. She still works now. The pandemic has largely changed that. But up until the pandemic, she was working and she will again the minute she can. I'm that way too. So recently I realized that I am working as hard as my mother and that it's really serving a lot of people, but it's not necessarily serving myself in terms of self-care. And so I've done something radical, which is I'm taking the month of June off. And am I scared financially? A little bit because the pandemic really flattened my, my income, which is, yes, I'm a best-selling author, two-time best-selling author, but that doesn't mean I'm rolling in the dough. Like most writers I know, they have a secondary job, usually teaching. And so my writing retreats in Montana are what constitute my income. And that was, of course, postponed because of pandemic. The opposing value that we got growing up about money is, I don't know if it's shame-based or, or exactly what it was, but we... Again, it was like, you can have that kilt or you can, we're going to take that vacation to Mexico, but don't expect it to happen again sort of thing. So it was always kind of like this brass ring in front of us that we were always reaching for. Was it to keep up with the Joneses? I mean, I don't know. We were already there. We were a part of that world. So it wasn't like there was social jockeying to do. We belonged as it were in that world. But there was always this consciousness of you get one shot at having that nice thing. And with that, it brought a lot of shame and an interesting relationship with nice things. So there's a side of me that I see women do this a lot. It's like, I love your dress. Oh, you know, five bucks at the local thrift shop. Instead of like, oh, it's Prada. I spent $2,000 on it, which I've never done. One of the things about living out here, we can talk about this in a minute, is that really it's an us-us. There is no private sector here. And it's, there's no us, them, it's us, us. And a lot, we don't really know what's in each other's bank accounts. And I think because I come from that background, people think that I have a lot of money. So there's a line in my book, it's directly from something I say. And the book is not about me, but this is the line that I say a lot. And Willa says it in the book. And that is, sometimes you have to allow yourself to be misunderstood. 
And I think around money, especially, which is such a hot button for people, sometimes you got a nice car, good. You don't need to explain it away or justify it or talk about what a great deal you got on it. You can hold your head up high and say, yeah, it's a really nice car. I love it. <laughs> we got to get rid of the shame. It's hard to do, though. Yeah, it's it's internal in a lot of ways. You got to manage yourself first. Tell us about your your pursuit of writing. And, and your move west, because you said that was a pivotal moment. It'd be great to hear more about that. In preparing for this chat, it occurred to me that I wrote a short story in college when I decided that I wanted to be a, a writer. And it was really, like I said earlier, it was one professor who was my film professor who gave me a D minus on a screenplay that I wrote. I was hoping for an A plus since the assignment was to write a 30 minute <laughs> screenplay. And I wrote a full feature film, half in Italian, because I'd spent my junior year in Italy. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get an A plus and graduate summa cum laude. And I went down to his office and this scene is depicted actually in my memoir. This is not the story you think it is. And he pushed it across the desk with this churlish grin, holding his cigar. And he said, this is not cinema, Ms. Munson. Take this to the fools in the English department. And I grabbed that thing and I ran up to the English department. I'd never taken one English class because I tested out of English 101. And I said, Elliot Stout says to take this to the fools in the English department. Well, the dean happened to be there and he smiled because everybody loved Elliot. May he rest in peace. And then he read it the next day called me in and he said, you're a writer. Where have you been for the last three years? I'm putting you into the advanced creative writing class. And this was my spring semester of my senior year. That was a big surprise and it was baptism by fire, but I knew I had found my people. I found my calling. And so I wrote this short story to kind of break the news to my parents and friends, and I'd forgotten all about it. And when I was out on book tour for the first book, one of my friends saw me on the road and she gave me this letter and I'd totally forgotten about it. She had saved it. I knew I was a writer and I knew that in order to be true to that calling, I'd need to live a really different sort of a life and to give up financial security if need be. So I wrote this short story. It's a scene starring a newly college graduated woman who is imagining the moment at the dining room table in which she breaks the news to her parents that she's going to move west, she's going to be a writer, she's going to bartend or waitress or be a nanny or whatever, but all of that fancy education probably is not going to pan out in the way that they had hoped. And remember, my dad didn't come from that world, so it was a big thing for him to be able to put me through that kind of private education. So here's the excerpt. It's short. It's so autobiographical. <laughs> it says, I'm going to pursue this writing thing until I'm burned out or dead or something drastic, but I'm not going to just blow it off because I'm afraid of being poor and for God's sake, different. I'll throw back the contents of my wine and with wet, angry lips, I'll speak my final piece on the subject. Look, if I don't do it now, I'll end up married in a northern suburb of Chicago before I'm 25 and all that will be left of this whole dream will be some old dusty manuscripts in a filing cabinet somewhere. I'm going to try hard to get what I want and then... Well, we'll let fate or God or whatever take it from there, okay? Can you just support me, not financially, but mentally, and respect my decisions? I am a writer of books. <laughs> I'll remind myself when I see their faces that it's all because they love me. I love them too, but there are things I want to do. Is that so weird? 
<laughs> that's my 21 year old voice. Oh my oh, god, that is great. Now we have to know how did it go in real life? How did the conversation go, Laura, with mom and dad? They said, That's fantastic, honey. So you should go into advertising. And we know Howard Shank, who is the recently retired CEO of Leo Burnett. And that's the big one of the big ad agencies in Chicago. They sent me over to Mr. Shank's little garden shack that he had redone as his writing studio. And he was working on a book called Managing Retirement. And it was just like Mad Men. You know, he was sitting there smoking an unfiltered cigarette and listening to Bach and with like cool Turkish rugs all over the place and lots of books. He said, what do you really want to do, Laura? I mean, I can get you a nice job at Leo Burnett. You'd be perfect for it. You're an extrovert. You've got a big personality. You've got the gift of the gab. You love the written word. But what do you really want? He said, shrouded in smoke. And I burst into tears. And I said, I know this isn't what my mom sent me over here to tell you, but I just want to be a book writer. I want to write novels. And he said, if you can escape this demographic, then I'll know you're a genius. And that was a big, huge permission slip. And he said, when I was your age, that's what I wanted to do too. But I knew that I wanted to be in this demographic. I knew that I wanted to be married and raise children and be in a traditional household where I work and my wife raises the kids. Or he said, I have no regrets. I love my wife and my children and my home and everything I've been able to provide. I love my job. I've loved working at Leo Burnett. But now I'm finally writing books and it's a really full circle time for me. And he said, if you're willing to not have money, (laughs) and he didn't know what was in my bank account, but he said, if you don't need job security, if you don't want that 401k, if you can figure out health insurance on your own, he said, go for it. And I went home and told my mom, and I think she probably called Howard very quickly and said, Howard. <laughs> but that was the, that's another person, right? So it was Elliot Stout and then, that, and then the dean of the English department and then Howard. And that's, those are the three people that gave me permission. And so very, very soon thereafter, I moved to Boston actually first and drove a delivery truck for a flower shop in Harvard Square. And then I tended a woman's orchids. And then I moved out west, bartended, waitressed, nannied, rinse, repeat for five years before I moved here. And moving here, because my then husband had a job, a good one here, I was able to actually be that stay-at-home mom and write books. And I've written about 24. And some of them are even good. I've got about eight good ones that I hope to see published. Did you have any regrets along the way, Laura? Oh, yeah. I try not to have regrets. I try to be in that place of self-awareness and let it be my guide. Every so often now, when I see my friends who stayed in that world and who by now are 54, people have really done some very interesting things and by society's measure are very successful financially, career-wise, and in every way. And, you know, now because of the cult of the personality, which is social media, you see everybody in their second homes in the Bahamas and, you know, and every so often I'll, I'll go from, oh, good for them to good for them. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, good for them. You know, meanwhile, I'm here with my stack of bills and I don't have any regrets. And also living, living here, I know so much about the cycles of, of the natural world. I've 
because it's not, I mean, it, it now is more expensive to live here than it was before, for sure. But we got in on a piece of property a long time ago and built a home here. And I've been able to have horses and dogs and kids running around, you know, free and happy. And, and so when then I go back and visit friends in, in the suburbs, and for years, they all said, what are you doing out there, Montana? Are you crazy? You had it all and you left it. And, and I'll kind of look at their lives and think, I wouldn't be happy in a cul-de-sac. And it's interesting now, so many of them, now that the kids are gone, they're all saying, we want to move to Montana. <laughs> you know, it's almost like it was not cool back then. And now everybody's sort of interested in this sort of life. So no regrets. I've had a very happy life so far, even though, of course, there have been some bumps and bruises along the way. For sure. But I love how you put it. You try not to have regrets and that you let it be your guide. That's really that's really beautiful. What role, Laura, has money played in your adult life? Well, enter post-divorce reinvention. We were going through mediation and the mediator, who was a wonderful man, said, Laura, you do realize the first thing that you're going to lose is the house. You don't have a job. You've been lucky enough to be a stay-at-home mom and you're going to have to find a job and downsize. That's the first thing to go. And I stood up. <laughs> I've never felt more fierce in my life. I'm a Leo and it, I was like all Leo. Like I sprouted a mane, like a chia pet Leo <laughs> mane. And I said, I truly leaned in and pointed in his face. And he's a nice man. He's a Buddhist. Right? Like, you know, he's a Buddhist divorce mediator. I mean, think about what he has to do. And I think you have to be a Buddhist to be a divorce mediator. And I pointed at him and I said, just you watch me. And I went home, went into my office and I had, so I had already published that memoir and it was a New York Times bestselling and international bestselling book. So it, it had landed in a lot of people's hearts and I had a good social media following. I still hear from people about it. They say it feels like they're sitting with a good friend. And so they trusted me. There was this inherent trust because I had been very vulnerable and honest in the book and pretty raw and also emotionally responsible. And the book was all about emotional responsibility. And I wrote on Facebook, hey, anybody want to come on a writing retreat with me in Montana? I've never been on a writing retreat at that, at that point. I'd never, I'd never taught anything except for my children how to read and <laughs> walk and eat and et cetera. I had no idea what even a writing retreat truly meant and where I would hold it and how much I would charge and who would come to Montana. And do you know, in two hours, 24 people signed up. That's wow. when you know you're in the flow, right? And so that I thought, okay, I, I've, I'm on to something here. And so then I found the place, I found the price point, I found the program. I've got over a thousand alums of my first program and hundreds of my second and third and fourth programs from all over the globe and many demographics. So back to money, because a lot of the people who want to write, whether they want to be best-selling authors or not, don't have a lot of money. And I found that to be the case over and over again. And I, I was so sick of turning people away because once I started leading the retreats, I understood the value of them and that I was really good at it. And in fact, I'm very bad with numbers. I think I must have a learning disorder of some sort with numbers, but I'm really good at teaching, it turns out. And I'm really good at holding a group together. And I'm really good at kind of letting the program work its way into people's hearts and minds and kind of unbraid them and then braid them back together again. I just was so, so sorry to have to turn people away because they didn't have the money. And so I started a foundation. It's a 501c3. It's called the Haven Foundation. And because of the foundation, 
I'm able to award partial scholarships to people so that even though the groups tend to be sort of middle-aged women, lots of white women, I'm trying to try to make it as diverse as possible. It's just who reaches out to me for leads then that's who ends up coming. But within those groups, there's a great degree of financial diversity because of the foundation. I'm really proud of that. And it makes for a really interesting group of people who might not meet in their daily lives. So that's what that's the, the money piece in my adulthood really is all about Haven writing programs. It's ranked in one of the top writing uh, programs, non-academic in the country. And I'm proud of that too. Yeah, you should be for sure. That's exciting. It sounds like you just kind of bootstrapped your way into this really nice community building project that helps supplement your writing income. Yes, it's really, I mean, it it is actually my main income. For people out there who think just because you're a best-selling author, you must be a gazillionaire, you really get paid once, which is your advance at the beginning. And then, then you have to make back what they gave to you in book sales at a certain percentage. And then once you do so, then you gain royalties. And even if you are a major best-selling author, I think that it's about 5% and under that make back their advance and gain royalties. So my agent always says, don't spend your advance and don't count on royalties. So that's just something for people to know out there. And when you're reading books, nobody asks us to write. It really is something that feels like a calling, probably like the two of you putting together this podcast and all the things you do in your lives. I mean, we, especially people who are entrepreneurs, I think that for many of us, it's a labor of love. It feels like a calling and we need to monetize it. Let's talk about that. (laughs) That's a really good segue, I think, to Willis Grove. You were so kind to read your letter to the reader and also Willis' invitation to these women that in some cases she's very loosely related to. And money comes up a lot in Willis Grove. I would argue it's a character in and of itself. Tell us about the writing process and how do you come up with the characters? And I know this question is sort of long and involved, but maybe just a Cliff Notes version of how you thought about these characters and the role money played in each of their lives and in the conversations they were having with each other. I love talking about this. I've never spoken about money as a character in Willis Grove. I talk about Montana being a character in Willis Grove, but not money. And when you asked me to do this podcast, it brought a new awareness to me. I thought, I wonder if there's any money in Willis Grove. I wonder, well, um, let's see. Willa's beloved husband, Jack, has just dropped dead very young and left her with no money. And she has to sell the town, which was originally their family homestead. And it's a square mile of land that the two of them opened up to create community because in rural Montana, not where I live as much, but there are a lot of disenfranchised people that are way out in the woods. They need medication. They long for community. They're alone and they don't have any money. And so Jack and Willa built little low-income housing cabins and brought those people in and created this mercantile. And of course, it's Montana, so there has to be a little saloon, and a little gas pump. And there are 34 people that live in this town on the square mile of land called Willa, Montana. Well, their little community works just fine. Willa's at the cornerstone of it, like baking bread and making soup. And Jackson a band and makes his own beer. And it's a very happy copacetic community until he dies. And she realizes there's no money. And she suspects that he was such a dreamer that he probably was using their own money, of which there was not a lot, to help with those repairs for those low-income housing or to help people get their medication or drive them into Helena to pick it up, et cetera. 
and never thinking he was going to die and assuming he would be able to make it back. Well, she doesn't want to tell the townspeople why she has to sell the town because she doesn't want them to feel, enter again, shame, ashamed that for some reason that they had something to do that that contributed to the fact that she has to put this town up for auction. So I realized after you asked me to come on your show that this book is full of money. It's all about money in so many ways. And so we've got four main characters. One is a mega famous motivational speaker who's completely sabotaged her career. So she had a whole lot of money. And then uh, now she's living as a hermit on, on Big Sur. And then we've got Jane, who comes from the demographic that I was raised in. And Jane's got all the money in the world and four kids. And she's doing everything she can to get them into all the right schools. And she doesn't have to work outside of the home. And she's busy, busy, busy all the time. Like so many people I know in that world, just volunteering and giving back and living that adage to those who have been given much, much is expected. And these people are not sitting around eating bonbons all day, as my mother would say. And she's miserable. So she's a great example of money doesn't bring you happiness. And then we have Bliss, who's very kind of from a small Midwestern town. And she's probably very kind of lower middle class. But there's a scene which is inspired by a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's also my age, single and an entrepreneur. And we were talking one day and I said, we got to talk about money. We're not supposed to talk about money, but you and I both need to get real about talking about money and supporting each other. We're not supposed to talk about it, but I mean, like, I want to talk, how much is your mortgage? I want to know how much is in your retirement account if you have one. And if not, I've got a great financial advisor I'd like to introduce to you. So it inspired this conversation about money that's in the book. Would you like me to read it? And there's some swear words. May I swear on your podcast? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, So this is in the middle of the chapter. She laughed because, this is Willa, she laughed because suddenly the whole thing seemed absurd. And somehow, I'm a 46-year-old widow who owns a town in Montana and has to leave. There was more to tell, but Willa wanted to be quiet now. Just a recap. She hasn't divulged that she's got no money to two of the three women. One of them, Bliss, her childhood best friend, knows. So she says, and somehow I'm a 46-year-old woman who owns a town in Montana and has to leave. There was more to tell, but Willa wanted to be quiet now. She was telling on ghosts on top of betraying them. Still, she felt she owed the women a glimpse of the truth since they were bearing their own. The long and short of it is, like most things in Montana, it comes down to money. Harriet said, but Montana is all the rage right now, said Harriet. You stand to make some serious money at the auction, don't you? Plenty of our visitors wanted to move to Montana. One man from Texas offered us $2 million, was ready to write a check, but we turned him down. This was our place. It wasn't for sale, no matter what. But now, I don't see it any other way. I called around, didn't get any real leads resorted to an auction. They handle all the advertising, and that's why you see those signs on the mile markers. Word got out, but I doubt it'll sell for much. There's no local economy here. Willow realized she was biting off every nail on her left hand. Her fingers stung and words escaped her mouth. I'm just so mad at myself that I didn't keep better track of our finances. Jane, so Jane's the one that has all the money, the one who's uh, living on the East Coast that I described earlier. Jane sunk deeper into the leather chair. 
I'm not sure what your situation is, Willa, and I don't mean to make assumptions or be horribly offensive, and I'm sure this is the wine talking, but for what it's worth, I think there are more married women who know zero about their finances than they would ever admit, no matter how educated we are. I think so many of us trust that things are being taken care of have the house and the kids and everything that entails on our shoulders and the man provides jane pulled her robe up over her mouth sorry it is the wine talking i'll shut up but then she pulled back her robe and shot her hands up in the air call the pc cops but at least that's my marital agreement it's very traditional but who knows if palmer died or left me i might be totally screwed i have no clue what our finances are and of course i know better but i'm just being honest Harriet, no judging. It's the way Palmer loves us. If I took over the career and the managing of finances, what would be left for him? Golf? Providing for us is Palmer's love language. Harriet groaned and said, fuck that shit, Jane. <laughs> you need to know what shape your finances are in, always. You need to have your own bank account too, frankly. Easy, Harriet. Bliss said. No one needs to be laid out in lavender. I'm probably the most practical person you know, right? Yes, said Harriet. You put the T in teetotaler. Usually, Montana Bliss is going to be a whole new adventure. They're all drinking wine, by the way. Bliss ignored her. Well, I didn't know anything about our finances either. I intentionally stuck my head in the sand. I know exactly what Jane's talking about. What's wrong with wanting to be taken care of? Harriet high-fived Bliss and said, you need to wake the fuck up. <laughs> and then shrank into the couch and rubbed Bliss's feet. But the soft part of me wants to wrap you in my arms and tell you that there's nothing wrong with wanting to be taken care of. Ooh, that's fodder for lots of argument. I can just hear book clubs across the country getting into big fights about that. <laughs> and I did that on purpose because... Writers are disruptors, right? Like if they're not getting into arguments over something you've written, you haven't done your job. I don't necessarily share any of those opinions, but I do think that people, even really educated people, are not talking about their finances and they need to. We agree. I, I actually want to be in that conversation. I'm so interested. I want to know how it plays out besides reading the book. I mean, you just want to dig deeper into layers and layers. Well, there's a lot of talking at the beginning of the book because they tell each other their stories. And remember, they don't all know each other. Willa knows Bliss and then Bliss asks Harriet and then Harriet asks Jane. That's the model that I want people to follow once we can gather safely again and to, you know, have like Cammie's Grove. Because a grove of aspens is one organism. That's why it's called Willa's Grove because these four women and become an organism. And so this is at the beginning when they're just getting to know each other and some of them are really resisting these conversations and they, they want to go hiking because they're in Montana. They want to they go horseback riding. They want to see grizzly bears or whatever. And they really have to talk at the beginning. But then Montana starts to become more of a character and schools them in all sorts of things. So as the book continues, there's less conversation and more interaction with wilderness. Laura, you obviously really believe this. It's embedded in your writing and those stories. Tell me back, you mentioned turning to your friend in real life and saying, we got to talk about money. What drove that? What was within you that believes so strongly that we need to talk about it? We're very good friends and we've known each other for a long time. But like these women, they're not in each other's daily lives. And this is a friend of mine that's not in my daily life. And the women who come on my retreats aren't in each other's daily lives. So I think there's something about 
reaching out to people who don't judge us for the way we parent, don't know if we spend a lot of money on shoes. There isn't stigma around money. So for people who aren't in each other's daily lives. And so sometimes, if not always, it's friends like that, that we can dig really deeply into different kind of itchy, scratchy subjects like money with and, and loneliness and fear and jealousy and all the stuff we're not supposed to talk about, shame, all of that. That's when we started talking about it and boy, did it feel good. And it, and it really is because we're, we're in a very similar position. I probably wouldn't have that conversation with a friend of mine who has great wealth. That would be interesting for me to parse. I wonder why that is because I left a world that would have probably given me great wealth if I'd stayed in it, etc. But there's something about being in the same situation with somebody that I think can really open up great discussion. Now, I could argue it the other way that my father is right. People are the same everywhere. We all want to be loved, we all want to love. Most of us would like to have some sort of security and comfort. And so I think that you really could talk about anybody that you trust about this subject. I think safety is really important. And that's a very subjective word. But I think it's important to choose wisely who you have these sorts of conversations with. And maybe even have some sort of guidelines or rules to keep it safe. Everything that we talk about is completely confidential in this conversation, okay? And she would say, of course, that goes without saying. But sometimes we need to set up those guidelines to feel safe so that we can go there. I think it's interesting that you say that, Laura, and I I completely agree with you. But I'm just thinking back to the scene in the book, and I wonder if it's their ability, these characters' ability to have that honest conversation that creates the safety for them. Yeah, well, so now we're getting back into my favorite subject, which is storytelling. And they realize at the beginning that it doesn't feel safe. Jane's got her eye, like she's looking at an exit sign in a movie theater thinking, you know, what did I get myself into? I think she thought that she was showing up for a spa weekend or something. You know, they were going to be doing yoga the whole time. Harriet, all Harriet's done her whole life is talk. She's a motivational speaker. She doesn't want to talk at all, really. And then Will is just in massive grief, but has a big decision to make. And Bliss is more of the glue. So she kind of, she's the one that feels safest to me at the beginning. So they decide that because they're all having different responses to this idea of telling their story to help each other figure out, so now what? To answer the invitation that they all said yes to, they realize they're going to break down their story into two parts and make space for it. And that happens the first night. And so they, the first part is what you thought would happen or what was supposed to happen in quotes. And then the second part was, and then what actually happened, because something tells me that if you're at a major crossroads moment, having, you know, staring down the barrel of, so now what, what was supposed to happen and what actually happened are probably two very different things. And that's what puts us in those sorts of conflicts. Once they break down the conversation into those two, the storytelling into those two parts, then things start to really open up. And I think that's where the safety net grows and, and it grows and grows throughout the book. But like Jane, for instance, she's very quick to say, and that's my story, you know, somebody else go next. And, and Harriet calls her on it and says, no, Jane, you're here to tell your story. You're here to help us help you figure out what's next in your life. And so then Jane spills it and boy, does she spill it. And I, I don't have that part handy to read, but she really goes into how miserable she is in that demographic. I know people in that demographic who are very happy in it. So I'm not saying money is bad or wealth is bad in any way at all. I'm just saying that I think it's important to have the awareness that it brings us comfort and choices 
but not necessarily happiness. Well said. I'm wondering when people are afraid of being judged, is it truly that they're afraid that others will judge them or it brings up for them this feeling awareness that they've been judging other people all along? That's an interesting one. I'll try to have some elegant thoughts around that for an answer. I think that here's just something to do. It's something I did one day myself. I kept a little piece of paper with me. I always have a little notebook and I wrote down every single time I judged somebody or something because I thought I'm not a very judgmental person. But the reason why I thought that was that I was thinking one of my family members is a highly judgmental person. So I was judging her for being judgmental, which turned the mirror back on me, which is basically what your question is. It's so confusing, but right. It's like, if we're pointing, and this is a big thing that when I give speeches, I talk a lot about it, but how so many of us walk around playing the blame game and pointing the finger at everybody else instead of really holding up the mirror to who we are around that same sort of judgment. And usually it's because we judge ourselves for the same thing. And so it's a way of deflecting our own relationship with ourself and our self-awareness. So do you know, I forget what number it was. It would be great if I could produce that for you, but it was really scary. It was a huge amount of judgy, judgy thoughts. And they're not all mean. Some judgments can just be like, I don't like that you know, lawn furniture, or I wouldn't have cut down that tree or, you know, so judgment isn't always just, and they're bad because of it. But to start tuning into judgment is something that I think is really important, especially around money. And like I said, around here, and this is something that comes up in Willis Grove a lot, your currency around here isn't necessarily what's in your bank account. The currency around here is, is community accountability. If I drive my car off the road because I hit some black ice in the middle of January, I can't imagine a truck uh, or a car or not stopping to offer help or see if help was on the way. Because in, in many cases, like there's no cell phone service. People are very accountable to one another living in a place where the weather can be so harsh. And in forest fire season, I think with the fires around our country, a lot of people are learning about that, that we can't just hide away in our houses. But I think around here, outside of the currency being heart language, accountability, human kindness, community mindedness, there's also something I've watched with great interest since the beginning, and that is how those with wealth here are often the ones who are judged which is interesting because a lot of the people who have zero wealth at all on food stamps going standing in line at the food bank they're in many cases the norm here and everybody goes to the same school pretty much again there's this real us us thing but i have noticed the judgment in terms of money it's kind of reverse than it is in more affluent places and that's just been interesting to watch. I'm not, I try not to judge it. I just try to watch it and learn, be curious about it, be kind about it, and then write about it. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, it's great. At judgment or not, you've, you've got a ton of wisdom. You've got a great way of looking at things and you share much of yourself and you've accomplished so much. Who is your next money conversation going to be with and what will it be about? My next money conversation will likely be with somebody who is helping me keep up this house because I've been here for 30 years and it needs some work. If I had fixed over my garage and turned it into an apartment, I could have had it full during this entire pandemic. And I've been threatening to do this for years and years and years, but I'm scared because it's going to cost a lot of money. But I also know that it could make me some money and it would be a nice space for my kids to come and spread out a bit. 
my kids now are really pushing me to fix that space for both of those reasons, both to monetize it and for them, you know, if they get end up getting married and having children, it'd be nice for them to have a space like that, not be in their little childhood bedrooms. <laughs> and so I haven't been able to lead my retreats for the last year. I'm going to start leading them this fall though. And I'm now booking and they're filling quickly because people are starved for this sort of thing. So that's the next conversation that I'm going to have. I'm going to, even though I haven't really had much of an income this last year, I'm going to bite the bullet and do it because I think that it's a very independent and strong and courageous thing to do. And if this last year has taught me anything, it's that I'm all three of those things. And even though I'm, you know, you have to spend some money to make some money. And even though I'm a little nervous about it, given the pandemic and our, our economy and my income right now, I'm going to do it because I think it's smart and I'm sick of, if I, if, if I do have a regret is that I didn't do that 25 years ago when we had the resources to do it. But then, there again, I thought, you know, you can always justify it. Sometimes you just have to take the leap. It seems like a perfect decision and a perfect conversation to have. Good luck with that, yeah. Laura. Uh, and send us pictures <laughs> when you're done. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It was so great to get to know you and hear your thoughts about money and about storytelling and how the two are woven together. And we wish you a lot of continued success building radical communities of open, honest conversation. Oh, you're welcome, Sandy and Cammie. And also, I actually, because I'm a writing teacher, I thought I'd give your listeners a quick money writing prompt. Would you be open to that? Oh, oh that'd be fantastic. Great. What a perfect way to end. Very quick one. Okay. So if you're out there without a pen or a piece of paper, grab one. Grab a piece of paper and a pen. And I want you to think about, and this is something that's piggybacking on what Sandy said, how she said money is a character in Willis Grove. I'd like you to make money a character in your life, like capital M. And I'd like you to take money, capital M, through three days. Day one, a major holiday you choose, the one that's most charged in your life. A major holiday. Maybe you're a single mother and you share parenting with your one's husband and you're alone on Thanksgiving. So make it really specific. Take money through a major holiday. Take money through tax day. <laughs> through tax day and then take money through a vacation day you don't have to do from like dawn to sunset but it can be just like a, a big scene in a major holiday a big scene on tax day a big scene in vacation day what does money dress like in your world this is your relationship with money what does money smell like talk like think like act like what is money like for breakfast what does money not give itself? That's a big one. Think about money as a character and take them through at least one scene for each of those three days, a major holiday, tax day, and a vacation day. And I think with that exercise will come a lot of self-awareness and it'll be fun too. So enjoy it. Laura, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. And hey, Laura, if our listeners are excited about this writing prompt and want to do more writing lessons with you, what's the best way for them to, to sign up for one of your retreats? Oh, thanks for asking. We can go to lauramunson.com and you'll see at the top Haven Writing Programs. And then there's a drop down menu and dig around in there. And then if you're interested, you can email me and we can set up a time to chat about it 
to see if Haven is a match for you and vice versa. So that's Laura at lauramunson.com. That is my email. Website's lauramunson.com. And there's also something new that I'm doing that, and that is Haven Nest, which is my monthly subscription community. That's $19 a month. And that's much less rigorous. It's meant not to overwhelm, but to inspire people and to also create community because I think we're all starved for that right now. So that's Haven Nest and you can sign up there and you can also look into my Haven writing programs at lauramunson.com as well. But there's one in early September and one in late October where there's still room. So email me if you're interested, laura at lauramunson.com. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks, Laura. You're welcome. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks for holding the torch on this very important and very fraught subject. Sandy, thanks again for another wonderful conversation that we just had with Laura Munson. She's got a really fascinating story, and I appreciated how she told that story to us. I agree. It was really fun to talk to a professional storyteller. Her language was impeccable. And just her way of describing things to us, I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And what do you think? We talked a lot about Willis Grove and about community and the importance of community. What were you thinking about when she was talking about that? Well, I was wondering, do you think it's easier to talk to your friends' friends about money than it is to talk to the friends who are in your daily life about this subject? I think so. It depends on the topic. There's a place for friends. And I do feel I can be vulnerable with friends. So for my friends who are listening, I can be vulnerable. But there are some times where I would feel more comfortable in a group of people where I gain their trust, but I don't know them today and I won't see them. I, there's a, I won't be running into them all the time. There are some topics I might feel more comfortable. I'm one of those who would be more comfortable talking to friends of friends or a different community. How about you, Sandy? I think so as well. I think there is safety in having a loose connection with people. It's really easy to talk to those people in my life and get real deep real quick in a way that I don't with my my friends that I see and talk to all the time. I know. So let's get a little bit deeper on that. Why is that? It's a good question. I think it might be because it just gets easy to talk and, and reveal. And because we're not seeing each other every day, I think the safety comes from the folks I'm talking to knowing enough about my life, but not knowing other players. Mm. That makes sense. The familiarity, but they don't have the deep seated knowledge and there's not as much risk in me sharing things because they'll never really get to know <laughs> my family member or my friend or my colleague in quite that way, you know, wh- whatever person or people might be part of the conversation. That is great. All right, Sandy, Laura gave us an exercise, or really our listeners, I think you and I both said we would take her up on her exercise. She said, make money a character in your life and write about a day that happens, whether that day is a major holiday or tax day or vacation day or all three. Do you want to take the first exercise? I'm happy to do it, but I will just say that that was such a gift. That was such a surprise to me when Laura mentioned that. And I thought it was so fun and so fitting. I didn't write about a whole day. I wrote more about an episode. Vacation. That's where I started. And and so I'd love to share what I wrote. Back off money, I yelled. We've been over this a thousand times. You're not coming with us. 
Your job is over for now. We're going to leave for the airport. Why don't you just stay here and grow while we're away? Keep an eye on the house and make sure everything is in order while we're gone. Remember last time? We had a beautiful vacation in Portugal, enjoying all the plans you helped us make. But when we returned at 3 a.m. after 12 hours of travel, we were passed out on the couch while spoiled food was oozing out of the refrigerator that broke down under your watch. Please don't let anything like that happen again. Money slumped over. He looked sad and dejected. I get it. It's hard not to be loved and desired all the time. Wow. I love that. I want to be in your scene. Here's how I tackled this exercise. I, I wrote about money during a major holiday. And I said, money's at a holiday event and she's really happy. She gets to have all her family and friends around her and have great food and some fun and libations. And the weather is gorgeous outside. And money's wearing a casual dress, super cute, flowy dress. She's wearing sandals and the sun is keeping her warm. And the weather is just that perfect temperature and dryness where her hair looks great. She's got a little makeup on. And before everyone came over, she went for a run or a paddleboard. Money was able to have someone come over and help her with the cleanup so that she could enjoy hosting her friends, having a ton of fun, and not having to do the cleanup afterwards. Money did the shopping and the prep work and the cooking because that's really fun. (laughs) I love it. So, so interesting. Money is female for you and male for me. That is funny. That is really funny. I didn't even think about gender when I was writing. It's just what came out. Yeah. I was almost thinking money was a man for tax day, but I did write it as a woman. Did you? Mm -hmm. That was a great exercise that Laura gave us. And and I want to apply it ongoing. I think there's a lot of things you can do to bring things to life. Maybe something you're struggling with, maybe a decision you're trying to make by pulling it away from yourself and making a character out of it. I think that's right. And what surprised me, Cammy, was just how easily the words spilled out. That's good stuff. Really good stuff. I want to celebrate with your money. <laughs> Come to the, you're coming to the party. You're one of the friends. She sounds fun. Thanks, Sandy, once again. Yes. And thank you to Laura Munson. This is a, an incredible conversation. Listeners, please do try her writing assignment and share with us what you've written. And reach out to Laura too and share with her. Her writing programs sound pretty phenomenal. Good idea. Listeners, you can always find us at aspirantpodcast.com and reach out to us at podcasts at aspirant.com. Thanks, Cammy. See you next time. Thanks, Sandy. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammy Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.